So, reading number one, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to open them. But uh, reading number one, it's going to be up on the screen here, Matthew 4, verse 18 to 20. This is Peter's entry moment. So Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. They were Simon, his other name was Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were putting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. So here's Peter, his brother Andrew, and they're just going about the family trade. They're fishing. And Jesus calls them, invites them, beckons them. Come and follow me. Turn your attention to me. Do as I do with me. And I'm going to take what you already know how to do with fish. And I'm going to turn it into something that will be for mankind. Come and follow me on that adventure. Reading number two. A little bit later in Peter's life, there's a whole heap of ups and downs, but I love this moment. Peter declares to Jesus this declaration that he is the Messiah. Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say I am? What's your take? What's your, what's your read on this? And the disciples report back to Jesus, well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, and some are saying that you're, you know, they're, they're putting all these details together. And Simon Peter, Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, Peter means rock, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, theologians are kind of split on a couple of little points here that I just want to bring to some of your attention if you're a bit of a Bible geek. They're not sure, they can't agree on whether the church will be built on the rock that is Peter's confession or on Peter himself as a person. So some scholars say it's his, it's his confession, it's what he's declared. Some theologians say, no, it's Peter himself. He plays a very crucial part in what this is about to do. So, jury's out. Feel free to take which either one or both of them from here. And then it goes on with this. In the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us about the life of Jesus. The book of Acts tells us about the life of the church. And in Acts, on chapter 2, we haven't got very far into the story. Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit comes in power beautifully upon the believers as they gather together. All these beautiful things are happening. They're praying in tongues, and all these sorts of wonderful things are going on in their midst. And the crowd around them say, these guys are drunk. This is an absolute shambles. Like... This is a mess. Uh, have you ever watched a bunch of really drunk people, or, you know, walking around late at night? Like, this is what this scene looks like. And they're saying, this is, this is terrible. And Peter stands up and he tells them what's going on. He directs them and says, no, 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 no. This is what God promised long ago. And here's what's going on here. So Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. And off he goes. I'm not going to quote it all here. And then at the end of chapter 2, he, he turns, he actually says, look, look, you have to turn and repent and, and come into alignment with this and you'll experience the good things that this is. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Oh, oh man, I, the things I'd do for a success rate like that. <laughs> I would do lots of things. Now, in those three readings that I've followed today, We've been just really quickly highlighting and looking at the life of Peter. There he is there in the icon. And I just want to highlight his biography very quickly for you. 
A little timeline. We have Peter, the fisherman, who is called to then become a fisher of men, a fisher of people. We then have Peter, who is called the rock of the church. And then we have Peter, this leader of a moment of renewal for the people around him. So what started as an invitation, a call, was followed through by Peter. How? It was followed through by being a disciple. It was followed through by being attentive to Jesus, a commitment to following him and to the journey that this rabbi, this teacher was taking him on. Jesus led him to great things, led him to that great renewal. Who would have thought that this average nobody, this common working class son who had spent his years working in the family trade of fishing on the Sea of Galilee, who would follow his rabbi, his teacher, to become this great saint, Saint Peter, the rock of the church? Who would have thought? And yet, this is the pattern that we see so often in Scripture. God doesn't use the most qualified. He doesn't use those with the greatest skill. He doesn't use those who are strategically functioning in the gifts of their wheelhouse. He uses those of a certain heart and a certain willingness for a certain journey. He uses those who will say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Amen. John Tyson has recently been preaching a series. John Tyson pastors this church in the city in New York. He's been preaching a series entitled, God Comes Where He Is Wanted. Terrific set of sermons. Highly recommend it. And I think that that's a good summary of the life of Peter. Peter's qualifying credentials ultimately come from his willingness. His willingness to be up for the transformative journey with God. A life of faith following Jesus. Becoming like him. A personal renewal in him first that then spread to the masses. So speaking of renewal, currently right now, this very minute, there is a renewal and outpouring a revival that is happening in America and Kentucky at the Asbury University. It's been going on since last Wednesday, so it's about 10 days old now. Uh, Christianity Today reported on it this week and it's starting to show up a lot on the internet. I want to read to you some excerpts. I I love this article from Christianity Today. It's very, very well written by Tom McCall, one of the professors there at this university. So I'm just going to take you through a little sketch of what's going on. Most Wednesday mornings at Asbury University are like any other. A few minutes before, um, sorry, before 10, students begin to gather in Hughes Auditorium for chapel. Students are required to attend a certain number of chapels each semester, so they tend to show up as a matter of routine. But this past Wednesday was different. After the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing the final chorus, and then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence. My quotes will come back. And they didn't want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. They are still there. 
Some were reading and reciting scripture, others were standing with arms raised, several were clustered in small groups praying together, a few were kneeling at the altar rail on the front of the auditorium. Some were lying prostrate while others were talking to one another, their faces bright with joy. They were still worshipping when I left in the late afternoon and when I came back in the evening. They were still worshipping when I arrived early Thursday morning. And by mid-morning, hundreds were filling the auditorium again. I have seen multiple students running towards the chapel each day. By Thursday evening, there was standing room only. Students had begun to arrive from other universities, the University of Kentucky, the University of the Cumberlands, Purdue University, Indian, Indian West, Wesleyan University, Ohio, Christian, and there's a bunch of... Stats for you, it's not a census, let's move on. The worship continued throughout the day on Friday and indeed all through the night. And on Saturday morning, I had a hard time finding a seat. By evening, the building was packed beyond capacity. Every night, some students and others had stayed in the chapel to pray through the night. And as of Sunday evening, the momentum shows no signs of slowing down. Some are calling this a revival. And I know that in recent years, that term has become associated with political activism and Christian nationalism. But let me be clear, no one at Asbury has that agenda. As an analytic theologian, I am wary of hype and I'm very wary of manipulation. I come from a background in a particularly revivalist segment of the Methodist holiness tradition, where I've seen efforts to manufacture revivals and movements of the spirit that were sometimes not only hollow, but also Harmful. I do not want anything to do with that. And truth be told, this is nothing like that. There is no pressure or hype. There is no manipulation. There is no high-pitched emotional fervor. To the contrary, it has so far been mostly calm and serene. The mix of hope and joy and peace is indescribably strong and indeed almost palpable. A vivid and incredibly powerful sense of shalom and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is undeniably powerful, but also so gentle. The gospel is not only true, but also luminously wonderful and mysteriously beautiful. And every time I leave the chapel auditorium, I feel I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen. Currently in that university chapel, thousands of students are encountering the taste that the Lord is good. Now, Pete Gregg, who leads the 24-7 prayer movement, and John Tyson, the pastor I quoted earlier, both visited Asbury in the last week, and they both posted on their respective Instagrams about it, saying, this is legitimate. God is on the move. This is outpouring happening here. And they've also gone on to the label of the point and say the same thing. This is genuine, and it's gentle. It is this powerful, but yet it is just sort of simple. This is the kind of thing that as a pastor... I, I, this is like the holy grail. This is what I pray for. This is what I work for. This is what I cry for. This is what I dream for. Like this kind of moment being in our midst. And here's a report of one breaking out amongst history's many reports of awakenings and outpourings and renewals and revivals. And reading about it this week, turning the pages on the Christianity Today website and various other bloggers who are commenting on it, I found myself asking, what is going on here? What's the thing behind this thing? Why is this working? And I can't help but think of the most helpful answer that I have at this time. It comes from Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church. He says, revival is what happens when personal renewal goes viral. Revival, public outpourings like that, 
What's at the core of them? Oh, a bunch of personal experiences. Something that's happened for individuals. And it's turning viral. I want to take one minute. I want to hit pause. And I want you to turn to the person next to you. And I just want you to reflect very quickly on this quote. What is it saying to you? Are you confused by it? Do you understand it? What are you noticing? Okay, it's talk time to you. This is not a monologue in this moment. It's up to you. What are you noticing as you hold this story and you think about that little cog that Mark Sayers has put up there? Go to you. Over to you guys. Go for it. What are you noticing? land those chats if I had been in your group if you were talking to me I mean I'd love to just pass the microphone around and just hear all of your thoughts now but that would take quite some time but if I was in your group and we were talking my reflection would have been this it strikes me as I think about that quote and I think about what's going on that the greatest space for an active move of God is to be found in you and in me, the greatest space, the greatest space of a move of God is to be found in us. Just take a second to take this in. The greatest moves of God, whether it's the Asbury University that's currently day 10 or so of this outpouring that it's experiencing, the Welsh Revival, the Hebrides outpouring, uh, Hearn Hutt, even here in Aotearoa and in our history, they have started with people experiencing and encountering something in them that has shifted something. It has transformed them. They live a different direction. They live into a different posture. And it starts to go out from there. We are very important in the way that this works. It's not about out there. It's about in here. We are invited to experience transformation. And I'm just here to say today, off the back of last week, if being a disciple is all about attention, well then the normal work of a disciple is transformation. We will be changed into Christ's likeness, bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. Attitude by attitude, character point by character point, love by love, habit by habit, transformation, transformation, transformation. What is it that stops us from experiencing transformation? What blocks it up? What stops us from having that kind of life with God and that kind of life for ourselves? I've got a couple of thoughts. I could have listed a bunch, but I just picked three today. Here they are. Firstly, I think what stops us from experiencing transformation is a misunderstanding of the gospel. A misunderstanding of the good news. For some of us, the good news just isn't very good. Dallas Willard writes about the fact that most of us just live with a gospel of sin management. The gospel goes like this. God loves you, but you're pretty rubbish. So he's come to exchange that rubbishness in this transaction, and your job is to keep it that way. 
And so you spend your whole life just trying to keep in this good transaction with God. Coming for forgiveness. Oh, I've stuffed up again. Coming for forgiveness. Oh, I've stuffed up. And we're just managing sin. We're managing our brokenness. We're managing this, um, this feeling of, of shame. We're managing all of these things that are wrong. We're not living towards anything good. We're just trying to manage the problem. Swing the pendulum the other way. And we have gospels of prosperity. We have gospels of triumphalistic victory where there is no brokenness. There is no sin. It's all good. It's all good. And God wants you to be happy and there is no suffering. Do not worry. God's got your back. And if you're suffering, then it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. You need to sort that out. But it's not God's problem. It's your problem. So you need to come over here and get hyped up with us in this corner. And that, that is another gospel that a lot of people sign up for. And it's another gospel that's unhelpful. Here at Central Vineyard, the gospel that we're utterly convinced about and the the gospel that we try and champion week after week after week and talk about as much as we can, we talk about the gospel of the king and his kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is king, center of it all, holding all things together, raised to glory, interceding for us and living in this beautiful moment at the moment of his church being his hands and feet of goodness into the world by his spirit. Renewing all things, working in all things because of the work he has started on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension. Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. And it's his kingdom we are serving and living in. Jesus is this lion lamb king. This one who has suffered. This one who has entered into his victory through suffering and through humility. Through pain. And through that... God is at work amongst sin, amongst earthquakes, amongst floods, amongst all of the rubbish that we are living in today. All of our own personal rubbish and the rubbish that's in the world. And what is he doing? He's slowly at work transforming all things to shalom. And so my question to you is, what gospel are you... And that was a very quick summary of a couple of really big things. but, But what gospel are you living in? What gospel are you living in? Because ultimately the gospel that you live in is the story you will live out. If you're living in the gospel of sin management, you're just going to keep living out this world of sin management. If you're living in this victorious, triumphalistic kind of thing, you're just going to live out this weird kind of, everything's all good and there is no problems. What problems? But you need to live in the middle. In the middle is the story of a king and his kingdom, and we are invited in to participate in that gospel, that good news. Come and be captured by God's big vision. He is redeeming all of creation. This is our Christian hope. That he is at work doing a good thing in our broken and disordered and devastated world. Christ is at work. So the gospel you live in is the story you will live out. Maybe you need to do some gospel work to experience transformation. Maybe the first thing that needs to shift is just your understanding of the good news that Jesus came to invite us to. The second thing is a lack of desire for God's work. Um, I've talked about this a lot, I'm just going to talk about it again, but there's this idea that Dallas Willard offers, which is how do you change? How does a person change? Well, you need three things. You need vision, you need intention, and you need method or means. You need all three. And it's true in all areas of life. It's true for going to the gym to get fit. You need a vision of who you can be. You need the intention and the desire to actually follow through on that vision. And you need a method. You need to go to the gym. You need to show up. You do all three things. Or maybe if you're trying to think about, okay, I want to I upskill in something. Well, you need a vision of an upskilled self. You need the desire to actually push through and learn 
and push through the growth curves. And then you need methods. You need ways to learn. You need things to track and to, to, to learn from. And so VIM, vision, intention, and means, is important to say, hey, I could just do vision talk after vision talk after vision talk after vision talk. But do you know what's always going to trump those vision talks? Your desire. Desire always trumps vision. The sense of, do I actually want to do that? Do I actually want to become that person? Do I actually want to show up? Do I actually want to go there? Do I actually want to be that? Do I actually want it? In Jeremiah 6 verse 16, we have this beautiful moment that a lot of you will know from Scripture. This is what the Lord says, says the prophet Jeremiah. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Epic. Good vision. Good method. I want that. But then look at the next line, the last line of verse 16. But you said, we will not walk in it. We don't want it. We don't want to do that. See, here's where this is interesting. It requires all three things. It requires vision, seeing something. It requires methods, doing something or practices. And it requires this thing of intention and desire. Because the truth is, the fact is this. Desire always trumps vision. Always. Just think about it from the start of this year. Some of the goals you might have set. Had a good vision for stuff. Gave some stuff a crack. But when the desire tank emptied, you probably gave up and stopped. Desire and intention are important. And so what blocks transformation? I think one of the things is a lack of desire for God's work. A a lack of desire to say, God, I want you to do what you are going to do with me. God, I trust you to do it. God, I'm leaning in that you may make me like you. I want to become Christ-like and I'm going to step in vulnerably for that work to happen. I want it. I desire it. I desire that work. So get to my future self with you, God. I want you to do your work. As painful and vulnerable, as open as I may have to be in the process, as much as that healing process is going to hurt every time you start to do your work, I am up for it that I may become more like you. Third thing, last thing. What blocks transformation is as if we're sidetracked by other behavior cycles. We're, um, I guess I could have written it just this way. We're busy. We're busy. And I'm, I want to be really careful with how I talk about this this morning. I'm not saying that, that, that we're not allowed to have leisure and passions and fun things to do in life. That is not my story with you at all. I believe in those things. I believe in Sabbathing richly and delighting in God, resting in His goodness, doing the good things He's invited us to do in the world. I'm all up for that. But I do think sometimes we're just sidetracked by other behavior cycles. And when talk about transformation with God starts to start up and we get a bit of a desire going, we just go, yeah, but my calendar's too full. I can't show up to a prayer meeting. I can't. I can't. Last week we talked about praying at the start of the day. I can't fit that in. I can't fit that in there. And we're too busy. We're motivated by being productive. We're motivated by being busy for God or busy for others. We're busy with non-essentials, other pursuits, and probably even just worldliness, pursuing the things of the world and the world's culture and the world's way. And I'm reminded as I just think about this this week and as I sit with this for myself, 
I'm reminded of how Jesus said, well, you cannot serve two masters. Remember he said that? He's teaching about money. And he said, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve both money and God. You can only give 100% to one of those things. And I think that's just the wisdom to hold in this moment, is to say, if we desire transformation with God, and we're only going to give it 0%, well then, how's that ever going to work? So again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have other interests or vacations or vacations or enjoy leisure. Of course we should do those things. Of course we should find healthy rhythms to life and enjoy each other and enjoy the things that we've got in our lives and in the world. But what I am saying here is that we also have to build a sacred rhythm into our lives. That we would then encounter these things in rhythmic ways to experience the good things of God do His transformative work in us. As a staff team, we have a trellis that we live by. And in the trellis, we have a couple of things that literally set our calendar for the year. We have supervision meetings that we go to once a month as staff members. We have retreats we take as staff built into our calendar that we will retreat together and get away together. We have a monthly uh, moment where we will do personal growth and spiritual growth together. These are diaried in. Because if we don't diary them in, something else will fill those gaps. And so I just ask you the same question today as you think about your year ahead. Have you diaried in transformation? You know, there's a guy here in this church who I was having coffee with a couple of weeks ago and he told me before he started his year he was going to go for a silent retreat for the day. Oh, that is, that's diaring in transformation. Off he went to the monastery to spend a day with God. Isn't that beautiful? It's a diary in transformation. Now, a little analogy here as I start to land the plane. Um... Gab and I last year um, had to sell a house and move in with Gab's mum. So we're now doing an intergenerational house with my mother-in-law and my kids. Um, Gab's granddad built the house that we live in. So my kids are the fourth generation to live in this house here in Auckland, which is pretty cool Like to be in a house where your kids are living in a fourth generation uh, inhabiting the house, which is really, really cool. But um, a lot of the house which was built in the early 70s is still stuck in the early 70s. So we have begun some, some process of renovation as a family. We're going to spend the next year and a half renovating this house. And we're going to have it so that my mother-in-law lives downstairs in a really beautiful granny flat for her. A granny flat when it's actually your granny. That um, doesn't sound so nice, does it? My mother-in-law's flat. That's nicer. I'll edit that out later. Um, and, and so uh, we're going to be putting that downstairs. We're going, to be, we're going to be doing up the house a little bit. We're going to be renovating the house. But you know what? To get to that is a whole lot of mess. The tools are out. We're starting to chip away at pulling some stuff apart. This is not our house, by the way. It's just a generic photo. We're not living in that. Um, but our house is turning into a construction site. It is turning into a construction site. We're, we're having to like start to organise where we are spending time because oh, that's going to be a renovation soon. Well, the switchboard's going to go in there, so we're going to have to move. You know, like we're, we're living in this kind of clunky and disordered and um, disorienting time because we're living in renovation. I use this analogy because I hope that it may give you some permission today. Construction zones, renovation zones. They are messy. They're messy. We're not perfect. We're living life as disciples following Jesus. And if we're living life following Jesus in in transformation, we're going to have to get used to living in this renovation space. Where there's some tools out. And it's not perfect. And it doesn't look great when you invite your friends over and one wall still hasn't got the wall cover on it that you wish it had. It will be messy. The tools will come out. But this is the life of transformation following Jesus. 
Uh, Dallas Willard wrote a terrific book called Renovation of the Heart. It's one of his classics. And in summary, I mean, I could put a bunch of quotes from this book, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to summarize it for you. As disciples of Jesus, all of us is in the work of renovation. All of us. Our loves are being renovated. Our attitudes are being renovated. Our character is being renovated. Our addictions are being renovated. Our desires are being renovated. And so the question today to ask is, do we see this work of transformation, this renovation, this change of our heart, this process of being renewed, this crucial thing that it is as a crucial piece of life with God? Do we see it as the crucial work of life? Are we willing to say as disciples, oh my goodness, I am in renovation and it's okay and it's good. Are we willing to say to each other in community, here's where I need your help. Here's the construction zone in my life right now. Here's where God is working something by his spirit. Here's where stuff is not perfect. Are we willing to confess and open and be vulnerable about that with each other? That we may then ask for that person to be accountable and be part of the process of journeying out of that that space with us and to pray with us and to hold us and to encourage us? See, we don't do it alone. We do it in community. But we must do this journey. We must. It's a crucial work of being a follower of Jesus. So So what am I trying to say today as I finish up and land? Simply what I'm trying to say is that the life of Peter that we started with was a biography of transformation. He started the story as a fisherman. He finished the story as the leader of a renewal. I'm saying this today because if we desire to see the kind of renewal that we could see in the city, if we desire to see the stuff that I showed you before about Asbury University, and you're thinking, I would love to see that here in this city. I would love to see God working in our generations like that. I would love to see a bunch of students who would be skipping class to go worship and pray and confess with each other. I would love that so much. It all is going to start with ourselves. It's going to start with, can we find this rich life with God together and go there? God willing that it may go viral. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just for us. But it would be a good work nonetheless. And I'm saying this because I don't want you to miss what the the win here in this community is. I'm saying this because as we head out on this journey of our vision to pursue Jesus and play our part, that's what our vision is in this church. That's the thing we're living towards. I'm saying it because what we're saying there is we want to spend our time becoming like Jesus, that we we may then do mission with Jesus into the city. And to do that, to become like him, it's going to take a deconstructing, reconstructing, renovation work where he does his tender and gentle and beautiful work of restoring our souls. You know, Jesus' titles are things like he's the good shepherd. Wow, we need to let him shepherd us. That he's the good healer. We need to let him heal us. That he's the good teacher. We need to let him teach us. We need to let him do his job that he wants to do with each of us. And the question is, will we become those people of transformation? Will will we become a community of transformation? 
And ultimately, I have to just leave you with that question. Because ultimately, the lesson from Jeremiah 6 is true. I can do another 20 weeks of talking like this. I could do another 20 weeks of showing you the best ways to live like a disciple. But if you ultimately don't want to do it, if you do not want to go there, as the people said in the Jeremiah scripture, we do not want to go there. If you don't want to, if there's that lack of desire and that lack of intention, ultimately it's not going to move any further than that. And so my question, the greater question I want to ask today, lovingly and caringly, this is not this is not me coming down, this is me entering in with. The question that is in the midst of all of us is do we want to go there? Do we actually want to? Because to become people of transformation, we need to choose it. But I believe that that's what the Lord's calling us to. I believe that's what he is inviting each of us to. I believe that there's Peter's in this room being invited into great things. And what is the entry point? A yes, a follow, and a teaching, and I'm up for it. That's the qualifier. And so I want to invite you to stand. And just for a few moments as we finish our gathering today, uh, I want to invite just the work of the Holy Spirit just to come gently and to just bring life to some of the things we've said today. And I don't know where this is going to go. This is the off-script moment for me as well. But I wonder what, what the Lord might just do as we just take stop and think about this and come into the presence of God together.